Today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter the offer code LEFT at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. You should. And now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The F Word with Laura Flanders, The Tom Hartman Program, Start Making Sense from The Nation Magazine, The Young Turks, and Activism from Democracy Spring. Dark money, super PACs, shady multimillionaires buying up democracy. When Americans were asked recently what they fear most, it wasn't terrorists, unless you mean the sort that take over your TV at election time, it was corruption. It's that fear that a certain multi-millionaire megalomaniac is playing into when he says, I'm so rich, I can't be bought, so vote for me. But is voting for a billionaire to protect you from rule by billionaires a sensible way to fight money in politics? Not exactly. It just looks that way on television because we see so little else. Is today's election auction normal or inevitable? Neither. A handful of Supreme Court decisions decided by a single vote, five to four, unloosed this particular cash flow. It's happened mostly over the last decade. As the Brennan Center reported this January, just one justice shifting opinion could speedily restore some common sense. Change won't come easily. In the last quarter century, the share of political contributions traceable to the top hundredth of Americans has doubled from 15% to 30%. Excess corporate cash rushes into every congressional and state house office in the land. Clearly, concentration of wealth is the problem. Corruption is the consequence. But it's just not true that there's nothing regular Americans can do. Reformers in California are gathering signatures right now to put a voter's bill of rights on the ballot next November. That would require TV ads to display their top donors clearly enough that you can read it and overhaul the state's campaign finance database to make tracking special interests easier. California's measure could send a message even to justices. Similar efforts are underway in Maine and Washington and South Dakota. But paying more attention to people making change would require media to change. They might have to pay just a little less attention to that billionaire. I want to be a billionaire so freaking bad. So Buy all of the things I never had. I want to be on the cover of Forbes magazine. Smiling next to Oprah and the Queen. What up, Oprah? <laughs> oh, every time I close my eyes. What you see? What you see, bro? I see my name in shining light. Uh-huh. Oh, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. What else? A different city every night. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I swear the world better On the line with us is Sam Smith. He's a journalist and editor with Progressive Review. That's ProRev, P-R-O-R-E-V dot com, the Progressive Review, uh, author of several books. And uh, his Twitter is at ProRev. 
And uh, fascinating piece, how the Koch brothers helped dismantle the Democratic Party. Sam, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much, Tom. Glad to be with you. Thanks for joining us. So how did the Koch brothers help dismantle a Democratic Party? Well, this and is a, uh, a story uh, it sort of stunned me that you were interested in it because I've been working on aspects of the story for over 20 years and nobody's been interested. But if you go back all the way to 1988... There was a group that was formed called the Democratic Leadership Council. This was Al Fromm's group, right? Al Fromm uh, and yeah, Bill Clinton. Right. And the idea was to move the Democratic Party to the right. And, uh, it had, uh, it worked with people like, uh, at the same time, Pamela Harriman was having over, uh, nearly a hundred meetings with people who paid a thousand dollars a head to come to them to discuss who the candidate should be in 1992. And uh, she raised about $12 million. But meanwhile, the Democratic Leadership Council was working on aspects of how you uh, make the uh, Democratic Party more conservative. And uh, what I didn't learn until earlier this year was that one of the people who had helped fund it in the early period were the, was Koch Industries um, with the Koch brothers. And... Um, this was this sort of stunned me because while I expected uh, some of the more conservative uh, businesses that did both sides to do it, I, I thought that the Koch brothers were pretty firmly in the Republican camp. Um, so um, that was sort of a... Uh, I think a they'll surprise. go wherever they can buy a politician, won't they? That's right. I think that's true. I think I had underestimated their willingness to buy people. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so the Democratic Leadership Council, this was... My understanding of it is that this thing was created in the late Reagan years, 87, 88. Yeah. Um, uh, that Al Fromm played a major role in it, at least according to his own book. Um, right. And uh, that... Basically, it was, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, my understanding, and, I've, and I have not yet finished reading Al Fromm's book, so I'm, I'm just only kind of halfway into this, um, but that basically they were saying, you know, the labor unions, which were, you know, a, a quarter to a third of the American workforce when Reagan came into office, uh, just eight years later had been, you know, decimated. They're down to, you know, they're from 25% of our workforce down to 7% right. now. Right. So there was no longer a reliable source of money for Democratic candidates. And so the, the rationale was, well, let's, let's find some industries that are not, you know, tobacco necessarily, that aren't too re reprehensible and get in bed with them. And, and the banks seemed like a nice, clean business. Uh, do I have that wrong, Sam? No, I think that's that's a good description of what was happening, and this was all going on, and it was it was basically ignored by the media, uh, in in large part, uh, and one of the problems was that this is sort of an early period. We now understand the incredible influence that industrial and corporate money has on our campaigns, but at at the time we didn't really. Uh, I remember giving a talk outside the Capitol in, in which I was tried to describe what was going on as bribery. And I said that if you uh, wanted to adopt these same principles in your same, own life, I would advise you against uh, giving a policeman $25 when he stops you and saying this is just a contribution. Right. 
because I mean, we have developed a completely different standard for the role of, of industry. Although just before the uh, New York Police Department really cracked down hard on the Occupy movement, uh, Jamie Dimon and his bank gave, uh, what, $4.5 million or something like that to the New York Police Benevolent uh, Association? <laughs> right. So, so apparently if you're rich enough, you can even you can still do it. You know, you can still give money to the cops and, and uh, buy their behavior. But I, you know, I'm just I'm astonished by this. The DLC still exists. Uh, Harold Ford Jr. is the head of it right now. Do I have that right? Uh, I think that I'm not sure what its exact status is. I think it is kind of faded. I think because it's kind of it's done its work. And when 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 um, Obama came along, what was interesting was that he was um, in part a. Um, a, a favorite target of the of the DLC, uh, but they at that point had had enough negative publicity they didn't want that really known, mm-hmm. and uh, so that they sort of faded from the scene. So is Obama a an anti DLC Democrat? No, no, no. He was he was fine with them. I mean, he was one of their uh, one of their creations in part. Right. So and. Um, and but the thing was that there was enough he was trying to present himself as far more liberal than he was oh yeah well and, i mean bill clinton campaigned with his new covenant speech on reviving right. fbr's new deal and and he never did any of that stuff yeah. and, and obama you know, campaigned think, uh, on one of the NAFTA. problems you got with this is that it's not just the media doesn't cover the present but it doesn't cover the past right. and as a result I, I happened to my, my father worked in the New Deal and I covered the Great Society and I'm aware of this this shift and how hard it is to get people to pay attention right. to and let me just give you one little example because I think it's so beautiful in 1933 uh, President Roosevelt elect Roosevelt asked uh, Francis Perkins to be his Secretary of Labor right. and she comes in with a piece of paper to the new incoming president of the United States says, yes, I'll be your secretary of labor as long as you support a 40-hour work week, a minimum wage, unemployment compensation, abolition of child labor, uh, social security, and universal health insurance. And Roosevelt went along. Can you imagine anybody doing that today? Right. Well, is I mean, I've, I've read a, a variation of that, only the opposite, that after Bill Clinton was elected in 92, in early 93, a couple of weeks before his inauguration, uh, Robert Rubin and Jamie Dimon and uh, Alan Greenspan, as I recall, uh, or maybe it was Larry Summers and Alan Greenspan and one of the banksters, sat him down and said, son, here's the facts of life, and you're not going to govern based on what you campaigned on. Right, um, is right. That, is that a, the, an apocryphal story, or is that true? It, yeah. And the other thing is, I carry this around in my pocket because it so it so stuns people. But the Public Progress Administration, Works Progress Administration of the New Deal, uh, helped to build or repair 2,500 hospitals, 2,500 sports arenas, 3,900 schools, 8,000 parks, 12,000 playgrounds, 124,000 bridges, and 125,000 public buildings. And we just have no concept of that being possible today. Right. Yeah, it really, truly is astonishing. And and in part because of the DLC that in part was funded by Coke Industries. And, right. And then, and there, according to this article I read, there, there's a couple people from Coke Industries who were on the executive committee of the DLC. So is, uh, I'm not sure is, about that. Is, but is, Hillary Clinton, is Hillary Clinton a DLC Democrat? Do we know? Well, I don't know exactly. I think that they went with Obama. I think they were, they were, 
you know, that, that election was basically a choice between uh, the establishment who said, okay, it's time we've got to have either a woman or a black president. Right. And so um, uh, Hillary Clinton and, and Barack Obama were the acceptable ones. So to the DLC. To the DLC, right. Right. So, uh, so I think that... Um, uh, and Bernie Sanders is probably not in the favor of the DLC. No, no. Dark money is your ticket now. Their motives are your sacred cow. If you accept their bribery, you cannot advocate for me. You may flip-flop, dive, and swerve. Two masters you can never serve. The book for this political season, in my humble opinion, is Jane Mayer's Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right, tells you a whole lot about how we got to this miserable point in our political history. Jane Mayer is a staff writer for The New Yorker and author of three best-selling books, including the indispensable book, The Dark Side, the inside story of how the war on terror turned into a war on American ideals. It's won many awards. It deserved every one of them. We reached her today in Washington, D.C. Jane Mayer, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Well, let's go back to January 20th, 2009. We were all watching Obama's inauguration on TV, our first black president taking office, a great moment for all of us. But meanwhile, in Indian Wells, California, at the Renaissance Esmeralda Resort and Spa, a secret meeting was underway, and you found out who called it. You found out what it was about. Tell us about that secret meeting. Well, it was pretty much the opposite of the theme taking place in Washington, where Obama was trying to say that there is no red America, no blue America, just one United States of America, and we're going to all move forward together. And instead, what you had was a small cabal of several hundred of the richest businessmen, mostly in the country, who were ultra-conservatives, who looked at the election of Obama as cataclysmic and were meeting to figure out what they could do to nullify the results of the election, basically. They discussed whether they should try to work with the new administration, and there was actually a big debate that took place there on whether they should behave sort of in the traditional manner of the um, opposition and try to work out compromises or whether they should do something more radical, which was to obstruct the young new president in every possible way. And overwhelmingly, the opinion of these financially spectacular <laughs> opponents of Obama was obstruct, and they began to lay plans for how to do that. Financially spectacular. Tell us a little more about that. Well, uh, the person who really organized this event was Charles Koch, who, with his brother David Koch, um, is the owner of Koch Industries, the second largest private company in America. It does $115 billion of business a year, and each of the brothers is now worth 
something like $45 billion. And so they alone were spectacularly wealthy. But the, the, the brilliant thing that Charles Koch has done is over the last few years, he has gathered around him a small group of equally conservative and equally wealthy, mostly white men, who are pooling their resources to try to influence the political outcome in America. And they meet in secret and they don't disclose their identities and they do take elaborate precautions to keep themselves from being seen by the public, even at one point employing white noise machines to try to create static so nobody could eavesdrop from outside of their the resort where they were meeting. And they do they they meet in secret and they have a almost unfathomable resources financially. You quote the invitation to one of the Koch brothers' donor summits where Charles Koch asked, quote, if not us, who, if not now, when? That quote sounds familiar. Doesn't it come from Jesus? <laughs> well, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a quote that's used often to sort of suggest kind of moral imperative of doing something. And I think what's important is it gives you an insight into how Charles and David Koch see themselves as kind of salvation of the nation. They are on a mission here, and they believe that they are going to deliver America from the evils of government, basically. They are such fanatics about the free market, and it's not just that it's good for their bottom line, but it is always good for their bottom line. What exactly is the relationship of the Koch brothers to the Republican uh, Party? You say they don't just support Republican candidates. You say they've created, quote, a private political machine that rivaled and threatened to subsume the Republican Party. Tell us more about that. From about at least 1980 and even before, the Kochs have been attacking the Republican Party, but from the right. So, for instance, in 1980, David Koch ran on uh, the Libertarian ticket as Vice President of the United States against Ronald Reagan because the Koch brothers felt that Reagan was a sellout. He was too liberal. And so it gives you a sense of where they've been at this point. They, they pretty much have defined the furthest right fringe. And they continue to do that so that you've got the, the bizarre spectacle this year of, of Charles Koch, who's become, who's quite engaged in being more public finally after years of secrecy. And he's been kind of flushed out and is trying to put a good face on what he's doing. And he's, he comes out and he says, you know, oh, I really don't have that much influence because I'm critical of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. Well, yes, he is. He's, he, he thinks the Democrats are, are hopeless and that the Republican Party is not right wing enough, which is why this book is about the rise of the radical right. These, this is, this is about the, the far right and its attempt to take over the Republican Party and through that the country. One of the most important things, Jane Mayer, about your book, Dark Money, is this backstory, which is not just about candidates and elections. To me, maybe the worst thing the Koch brothers uh, and their friends have done is to slow down action on climate change, especially by challenging the scientific consensus. What do they care? Do they really want rising sea levels and melting ice caps? 
Well, what they do want is rising profits for Coke Industries. I hate to say it because it sounds so cynical, but it, it, it's they are both graduates of MIT, so surely they are acquainted with sophisticated science, and yet they have been among the most important deniers of modern science of climate change. And they have funded, I think they put $25 million sort of secretly into groups that denied climate change between 2005 and 2008. And they've been part of, an, of a, a larger group of, of right-wing organizations that have put a half a billion dollars, according to one very recent, very credible study, into denying climate change and creating all kinds of confusion in this country among the public about what's real and what's not. And so is it that they want to see rising seas? Well, what they argue when you hear them, they very rarely really address this, but when they do address it, they will say, oh, you can't fight Mother Nature, or they'll even say, David Koch has even argued that climate change, if it is real, is going to make things better, and it's going to create more arable land for crops because there'll be less ice cap coverage, and they've funded scientists who will say that for them. And another part of the backstory of the Koch brothers in your book, Dark Money, is the story of the Koch family and the Koch brothers' father. This part of your book made headlines. You show that the father made his fortune in part by building a massive oil refinery for Hitler. I was also interested in your report about the governess the father hired to raise the two oldest Koch brothers. This was a, a hidden chapter of Coke Industries and of the Coke family. Yeah, it, it, it's, first of all, it fits in with the Cokes that no one knew this because this family and this company has a history of extreme secrecy. So very little has been known by the American public about it. But, um, it is true that, that Adolf Hitler personally green-lighted in 1934 the building of a refinery that was designed by Fred Koch, the father of Charles and David. And um, he was known for his sophisticated oil refineries that he could design. And this one became very important to the Nazi war effort because it was capable of refining high-octane fuel that was useful for the Air Force, the Luftwaffe for the Nazis. And it was the third largest refinery in, in Germany. It was in Hamburg. And so that was in, of itself interesting. It was finished in 1935, which is getting, you know, into a pretty dicey time in our, the history of the Third Reich. But if that was not already strange enough, the father also had hired a governess for his two eldest sons who were born by then who was herself a, a fervent Nazi and scared the daylights out of the little boys, according to the family. And she stayed with them until 1941, Hitler invaded France, at which point she was so excited that she wanted to go back to be with the Fuhrer to celebrate. So she left the family of her own volition in 1940. It's an unbelievable story. You really couldn't make it up, I don't think. <laughs> Let's talk about the 2016 election uh, who do the Koch brothers want to be our next president? I know it's not Donald Trump. He's one of the few billionaires who have not played ball with the Koch brothers. And it's probably part of his appeal, I have to say, that, that when you see interviews with the public, the people who've, who've supported Trump, they often say, well, at least he's not owned by someone else. He has his own fortune. 
pretty much all of the other major candidates on the Republican side for the presidency have paid visits to the Koch network, to this this seminar that we talked about in the very beginning. It meets twice a year with the big donors and the Kochs in hopes of getting their oversized financial backing. So the Kochs could quite easily get behind, for instance, Ted Cruz, or Marco Rubio, they've been they've been very positive about both of them. If if Trump is is falling behind, the the Cokes are back in the driver's seat. People say uh, there are right wing billionaires like the Koch brothers active in Republican Party politics, but they say we also have left wing billionaires active in Democratic Party politics and on liberal issues. We have George Soros who funds Democratic candidates. We have Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, who campaigned for higher taxes on the wealthy. We have New York billionaire Michael Bloomberg, who funds gun control campaigns. We have California billionaire Tom Steyer, who funds candidates funding climate change. There's billionaires on both sides, so the Kochs aren't, aren't particularly uh, remarkable in this view. What's your response to that? I think big money is a problem from any direction, whatever direction it's coming from. And really, I think that the the issue is whether concentrated wealth is beginning to overwhelm the idea of of political equality, one man, one vote. You don't want to see po- the policies of the country distorted by people who've got more money just because they have they can buy the influence. It's it, it's a corruption of the democracy. But that said, the money isn't equivalent right now and at least especially not the dark money which is what this book's about the money from undisclosed donors in the last campaign 80 percent of it was on the right 20 percent of it was on the left so it's 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 not exactly equal right now and then the third thing i would say is that what's interesting about the cokes and maybe worrisome about them is there's a complete fusion of their business interests with their political interests uh, last question. I read that the Koch brothers had tried to dig up dirt on you, so I googled Jane Mayer and dirt. I got 150 results, but but no dirt. Just stories about something called Vigilant Resources International. What is Vigilant Resources International? Well, the, that is the company that did the professional dirt digging on me for uh, some operatives working for the Cokes. It was uh, a private eye kind of boiler room operation where they hired the former commissioner of police in New York City, whose name is Howard Safer, and who runs Vigilant Resources International, to see if he couldn't find something to discredit me. When they when the Cokes were unhappy with a big piece I did in the New Yorker that kind of outed them and their role in politics. They couldn't find any errors in it, and so they were looking for other ways to take me down. And so they've hired a, a, uh, a private eye who went to work for a number of months and finally came up with some some stuff that he would tried to disseminate to the press. They tried to plant some unfavorable stories, but nobody would run them because they weren't true. But it was an ugly operation. It, it, it was kind of unusual in my experience. One footnote to this whole story. How did the Koch brothers do financially during the Obama years? Did it did Obama ruin ruin their businesses? Well, ironically, they've done fabulously, far more fabulously than most Americans you can imagine. They started the Obama years with 
being worth $14 billion apiece. And at this point, as I mentioned earlier, they're each worth $45 billion apiece. And as you can see, it's been a pretty good return on their investment. Have they thanked President Obama? <laughs> uh, not yet. <laughs> Jane Mayer, her terrific new book is Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right. Jane, thanks so much for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Today's episode is sponsored by Squarespace. They're the go-to platform to design and launch a professional-looking website regardless of skill or experience. To start, they have dozens of professionally designed templates that are responsive, so they automatically adjust to look and work great on any size screen or device. To put a site together, you just use their drag-and-drop tools to fill in your content, whether it be a portfolio of your work, a blog of your ideas, or an online store of whatever it is you're trying to sell. All of their plans start at an astonishingly reasonable monthly rate and includes 24-7 customer support. Plus, you can check out everything they have to offer risk-free. You can start a free trial without even giving them a credit card number, and then if you decide to sign up for a full year, they'll throw in a free domain with your site. Plus, if you make sure to use the offer code LEFT at checkout, you'll get 10% off your entire first year and support this show at the same time. Squarespace. You should. Recently, Hillary Clinton wanted to convince people that she's as dedicated as Bernie Sanders is to fighting uh, the corporations that have captured our politicians. Uh, that's hilarious, but I'm going to give you her quote first. She says, you're not going to find anybody more committed to aggressive campaign finance reform than me. She was promising to, quote, crack down on corporations that game the system. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm pretty sure I can find somebody more uh, committed to aggressive campaign finance reform than you. It's the guy standing right next to you, Bernie Sanders. Because you're continuing to take all the super PAC money, and he's not taking any. And he's saying he's going to fix the system, and you're saying, well, maybe we tweak it. Incremental reform. Gee, I wonder who's for more reform. All right, well, if you're unclear, uh, let's go find out who the Clintons are going to fundraise with right now. So she was going to have a fundraiser with uh, some Wall Street um, executives, and it was right before the New Hampshire voting, so that looked bad, so she canceled that. But she didn't cancel it, she delayed it. So now the fundraisers are uh, back to full scale with the Clintons. Uh, so David Sirota breaks this down. According to fundraising information collected by the nonpartisan Sunlight Foundation, former President Bill Clinton is scheduled to appear Friday at a Hillary Clinton campaign fundraiser in Cincinnati, chaired by Alan Burliant, CEO of frozen food conglomerate Best Express Foods. The company is regulated by the Food and Drug Administration, which in 2011 said it had discovered listeria and, quote, significant violations of food safety regulations at the company's manufacturing facility in Michigan. Okay, we're just getting started. Uh, now, they have some issues that they'd like to take up with the government, and they happen to be giving a ton of money to Hillary Clinton, who might be the next president. Probably a coincidence that the food industry is not the worst uh, violator of, of crony capitalism. Let's keep going and see if, if we can find something worse. Three days later... Chelsea Clinton is scheduled to be in Columbus, Ohio, for a campaign fundraiser at the home of Susan Tomaski, who is listed as a board member of the multi-billion dollar energy behemoth Public Service Enterprise Group. The New Jersey company is one of the nation's largest utilities and has nuclear power plants and gas pipeline interests. In recent months, PSEG has lobbied federal regulators on nuclear energy issues and lobbied Congress on environmental rules 
energy regulations, and issues related to nuclear waste disposal and a decontamination fee. Now, look, Susan Tomaski might be a, a wonderful human being. Uh, PSEG might be a good company, but that isn't the point. And I, I don't speak to either one of those things. I have no idea if they're a great company, a bad company. The point is, we can't have giant corporations or people with a ton of money giving money to politicians when they have interests before the government, and that politician could decide that later when he or she is president. That is a corrupt system. That's corrupt by definition. It's systemically corrupt. Anyone in Hillary Clinton's position would be caught in a bind. Hey, thank you for giving my campaign millions of dollars and getting me elected president. Now, when you say, hey, I got a regulatory issue with my nuclear power plant, what am I going to tell you? Piss off? No, that's not what they're going to do. What they've been doing for decades is, oh, I'm all ears. What do you need from me? Next Tuesday, Hillary Clinton is scheduled to appear at back-to-back -back fundraisers co-hosted by officials from Wall Street Colossus BlackRock, including Cheryl Mills, Clinton's former State Department chief of staff, and a current board member of the Clinton Foundation. Nice revolving door there. According to Politico, BlackRock fundraiser for Clinton had been scheduled for last week, but Clinton's campaign postponed it until after the New Hampshire primary following criticism of her Wall Street ties by her opponent, U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont. So Hillary Clinton's idea of reform is, oh, I won't go get money from BlackRock right before the voting. I'll do it a little after the voting. Oh, okay. Too bad, Hillary. This is a primary. The voting continues. Yes, you've caught it at a moment where it's not a couple of days before the election, but yes, we have Nevada coming up. Yes, we have South Carolina coming up. And you can't hide this stuff. This is what you do. This is who you are. You are a, a part of this establishment that believes it's awesome to take millions of dollars from all these companies, turn around, and tell us that it doesn't affect you at all. You're superhuman. You don't care about millions of dollars. A lot of these companies, remember, uh, especially the banks, gave money directly to the Clintons in the form of speeches. Hillary Clinton, at least $3 million. Bill Clinton, uh, when you put him in, about $10 million the Clintons put into their own personal pockets from the banks, and they tell us, no, 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 that 10, we're superhuman. The $10 million doesn't affect us at all. Yeah, if you say so. But you can, can you not see how we would be a little skeptical about that? Okay. A day after the BlackRock fundraisers, Clinton is slated to be in Chicago for an event at the home of Valor Equity Partners founder Antonio Gracias. The firm has invested in pharmaceutical, automobile, and energy companies regulated by the federal government. As a private equity firm, it also part of an industry that could face increased regulatory scrutiny from the next administration's Securities and Exchange Commission. Now, there, uh, International Business Times talked about some policies that Hillary Clinton has in regards to the markets. I actually like some of those policies. Yes, it might wind up helping a couple of these companies, uh, but I still think that they're good policies. And again, I, I have no reason to believe any of these guys are bad guys. If you're a private equity company, you're in a lot of different industries, and a lot of those industries have business in front of the government. I understand all that, but it doesn't make it any better that we have legalized bribes so that you guys, even if you're good guys, bribe uh, a candidate, and we call it legal. It's just a campaign contribution. I'm just paying her for a speech. I'm just giving money to her campaign or to her super PACs. Uh, the Supreme Court made it legal. And then after all those bribes, you expect us to believe that it has no effect on the politicians and that you, as a company, think, no, I'd like to give millions of dollars out of the goodness of my heart. Me, as a corporation, or someone on Wall Street care about profits? 
No, I would never. It's preposterous. Meanwhile, Hillary Clinton turns it around and says that it's outrageous, quote, to link donations to my political campaign or really donations to anyone's political campaign with undue influence with changing people's views and votes. Here's how many real Americans share that sentiment. Almost none. I know it based on the polling. Over 80% of Republicans and Democrats say, yes, money has a corrupting influence on politics. So you want to go around saying, oh, no, undue influence. The millions of dollars I've gotten, the millions of dollars they've given me, they don't expect any return on investment. They don't respect, uh, expect any favors. They just want to feel better about themselves. And not only does she say it doesn't affect her, but it wouldn't affect any politician. So how are you going to run against the Republicans? Bernie Sanders can say against the Republicans, you guys do crony capitalism. You guys are sellouts to multinational corporations and to Wall Street. Hillary Clinton is going to say nothing because she's doing the same thing. And now she's even defending the same thing that the Republicans do. That's the candidate you want? That makes no sense to me at all. And if you're a Democrat, how are you going to defend that in the general election? So that's it. You lose up your, you lose your best weapon against the Republicans. The Republicans are sellouts to their donors. We all know it. That's the whole point of their existence. But Hillary Clinton is promising you that she will not use that as an argument against them. That does not make her more electable. It makes her infinitely less electable. Talking points from talking heads with automated smiles. But there's no higher ground to stand. Okay, I want to play just some clips here. The first clip, number one here, this is from last night's debate. This is Hillary and Bernie talking about campaign contributions and, 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 and speaking fees and all that kind of stuff. Time and time again, by innuendo, by insinuation, there is this attack that he is putting forth, which really comes down to, you know, Anybody who ever took donations or speaking fees from any interest group uh, has to be bought. And I just absolutely reject that, Senator. And I really don't think these kinds of attacks by insinuation are worthy of you. And enough is enough. If you've got something to say, say it directly. But you will not find that I ever changed a view or a vote because of any donation that I ever received. What? And I have stood up and I have represented my constituents to the best of my ability, and I'm very proud of that. You know, so I think it's time to end the very artful smear that you and your campaign oh, have been carrying oh, out oh. in recent weeks. And let's talk, let's talk about the issues. Let's talk We both agree with campaign finance reform. I worked hard for McCain-Feingold. I want to reverse Citizens United. Let's talk about issues. Let's talk about issues. Let's talk about issues. 
All right, let's talk about why in the 1990s Wall Street got deregulated. Did it have anything to do with the fact that Wall Street provided, spent billions of dollars on lobbying and campaign contributions? Well, some people might think, yeah, that had some influence. Uh, just uh, the fact check, it was actually millions that Wall Street spent, not billions. Uh, tens of millions, probably hundreds of millions, but not quite a billion. But the, the point was made. I tweeted this last night, that, that Hillary had essentially uh, turned this logic upside down. And, and a lot of people do. A lot of people think that, uh, you know, I'm a, say I'm elected official. I just got elected to Congress. And I'm a blank slate and and the and 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 pharma shows up and says hey we'd like to give you a $20,000 campaign contribution by the way would you take a look at our piece of legislation to uh, raise the price of drugs and i say okay cool you know i'll do that thank you for the money that's not how it works what happens is pharma looks at the people who are elected or getting elected and says who are the people that we know will vote on our side and then they give them money so it's it's a self-selection process, but it runs in the reverse. It's not you now, now. It's not always the case, but it's not typically just like bribery leads to corruption. It's rather somebody has a position. They they deny climate change, so gee, Exxon Mobil is going to support them and is going to continue to support them. And so it's just that simple. But here's Elizabeth Warren speaking to this very issue that Hillary Clinton said, you know, find an example. I dare you, essentially. This is Elizabeth Warren speaking on Bill Moyers about her experience with Hillary Clinton. And she says, tell me about bankruptcy. And i got to tell you, I never had a smarter student. Quick, right to the heart of it. I go over the law. It's a complex law. Went over the economics, showed her the graphs, showed her the charts, and she got it. Within 20 minutes, she could play where the rest of it would come. Well, then that will mean this part's happened. That will mean this has happened. I said, yes, that's right. And at the end of the conversation, Mrs. Clinton stood up. She said, let's get our picture taken, which we did. And she said, Professor Warren, we've got to stop that awful bill, referring to this bankruptcy bill that's sponsored by the credit card companies. So I left. She went back to Washington. And I heard later from someone who was a White House staffer that there were skid marks in the hallways when Mrs. Clinton got back as people were reverse direction on that bankruptcy bill. President, they were supporting the industry and because of her... Uh, President Clinton had been showing that this was another way that he could be helpful to business. It wasn't a very high visibility bill. And when Mrs. Clinton came back with a little better understanding of how it all worked, they reversed course and they reversed course fast. And indeed, the, the proof is in the pudding. The last... Uh, bill that came before President Clinton was that bankruptcy bill that was passed by the House and the Senate in 2000, and he vetoed it. And in her autobiography, Mrs. Clinton took credit for that veto, and she rightly should. She turned around a whole administration on the subject of bankruptcy. She and got then, it. And then? One of the first bills that came up after she was Senator Clinton was the bankruptcy bill. Uh, this is a bill that's like a vampire. It will not die. Right? There's a lot of money behind it. And the bill it just, her husband had vetoed. Her husband had vetoed it very much at her urging. And? She voted in favor of it. Why? As Senator Clinton, the pressures are very different. 
It's a well-financed industry. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize that the industry that gave the most money to Washington over the past few years was not the oil industry, was not pharmaceuticals. It was consumer credit products. Today's episode is sponsored by Harry's. They're the company that is upending the entire shaving industry. They were founded by a couple of guys who were tired of the obscene prices and inconvenience of buying shaving supplies at the store where they often have blades under lock and key with the alarm set. Harry's produces super high quality blades in a German factory that genuinely give me the best shave I've ever had and they sell them directly to you for half the price of leading brands. It's a good feeling being a Harry's customer. It's like riding a bike during rush hour and cruising past all the cars stuck in traffic. With Harry's, you just walk past the razor blades in the store, scoff at their price, smile to yourself, and move on. Harry's doesn't do discounts because their prices are already really low, but they're offering a special deal for your first order. Harry's will give you five bucks off your first order with promo code BEST. You can stop overpaying for a great shave. Go to harrys.com right now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com and enter the code BEST at checkout. I don't need no highlights. Fancy for me. Just tell me what you really think without fear. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, Democracy Spring, a march and sit-in of historic proportions to save our democracy. If you're sick and tired of big money holding our democracy hostage, get involved with Democracy Spring. This isn't an ask to sign a petition or to call your congressperson, though you should keep doing those things. This campaign has the potential to be one of the largest civil disobedience actions in a generation. This April 2nd, thousands will come together to march from the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia, the birthplace of our nation, to the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C., where a peaceful, massive sit-in will take place April 11th through the 16th to, quote, demand a Congress that will take immediate action to end the corruption of big money in politics and ensure free and fair elections in which every American has an equal voice, unquote. According to Democracy Spring, over 2,000 people have already pledged to risk arrest. A coalition of over 50 organizations are working together to lead this effort and will provide necessary training and legal support to those who join. I want to take a moment to remind you that getting money out of politics is not just a progressive issue. This is perhaps the top issue that brings people together across ideological divides. Working together to fix this problem is how we heal from the fractured, polarized world we currently live in. It's time to take action. Visit democracyspring.org to sign up as a volunteer to help organize this event, pledge your participation in April, or to donate. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if getting money out of politics matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about hashtag democracy spring via social media so that others in your network can get involved too. 
Can you stand up and be counted? There's a body in a crowd. Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed? Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now. Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. I'm happy to report that we've got good news for you. Wolfpack's on a roll. Now we're going to Washington State. Well, we started in their house, and of course, as always, we were told, oh, no, it's not going to be possible. You're not even going to get a vote. And guess what happened? Oh, we won. Sorry. H.A.M. 4000. House Joint Memorial 4000. 52 yes. 46 no. Sorry. Wolfpack wins again. Now, uh, you gotta get the House and the Senate. You don't need the governors in any of these. You just need the legislator to pass it. So, we gotta go on to the Senate next. I'm gonna need your help on that. Wolf-pack.com. But let me tell you the story of what happened in the House, because it's a fantastic story. We fight. We've been fighting in Washington for three long years. Okay? While no one's looking, uh, way before we get under those lights, we, just like Muhammad Ali said, we train, we train, we train. Uh, we get ready, we make calls, and we win when it's uh, go time. So let me tell you the American heroes uh, on the legislature side here in the House. Uh, Representative uh, Raykdahl was fantastic. You're going to hear from him in a second. He was our sponsor, and he fought for it through and through. These are your new founding fathers, bringing democracy back to America. Speaker Frank Chop, if it wasn't for him, we wouldn't have gotten the vote at all. was absolutely critical. Senator Dean Taco came over to the House side to fight for this resolution because you need it in the House as well as in the Senate. He's now going to take that fight to the Senate. Representative Sam Hunt spoke in favor. Representative Noel Frame, great speech in favor. Representative Trad Chad Megendez is a Republican. Great speech. You're going to hear from him in a second. First, let me go to Representative Rakedahl here. Uh, he's going to make the case for why this resolution is so important. Listen to these. Now, remember, these are our representatives. And at the state level, look at them actually represent us. Watch. Our Constitution is a living document. We know this. All powers derive from the people. We know this. And the framers unquestionably understood that there were moments in our history where our members of Congress would hold power and not seek the will of the people. In those moments, the people take power, either directly or through their state legislatures, to ask Congress to take action. People and the states have spoken, so they act. The Bill of Rights started this way. Five of our last ten amendments have started this way. Quite simply, we've got to get dark money and powerful forces out of our elections so that it's returned to the people. This is the process that begins that. Sometimes it takes a year, sometimes it takes 15 years. But at the end of the day, if you believe all the power of this government is a derivative of the people, and that the Constitution establishes the states as the go-to place when Congress won't act? House Joint Memorial 4000 is our answer. You see, all the skeptics are sitting at their couch saying, oh, no, but the politicians will never do it. It depends. At the national level, where they have been completely corrupted by money, sometimes, unfortunately, that is true. At the state level, it is not true. They still represent us. Here's a guy who gets it. He says... Look, the Bill of Rights passed through this idea that there might be a convention. Last five out of ten amendments got passed because there might be a convention. So I got an idea. Why don't we call for a convention? And in that case, you don't need Washington. You could do it at the state level. So there's a Democrat fighting for it. 
Now, the other thing I'm told is, oh, well, you're not going to get Republicans to join you on anything. At the national level, that might be true. At the state level, that is not true. There are plenty of Republicans who are patriots and who actually represent their voters. Because remember, over 80% of Republican voters think money corrupts politics. They want to end crony capitalism. They want to end the corruption just as much as Democrats do. So here's Chad Meganez, a Republican uh, on the Washington House. Listen how strong he fights for it. Our political system is on trial right now. And, and frankly, we're losing. Um, when congressional approval ratings are, are lower than colonoscopies, head lice, and traffic jams, we've got a serious issue to deal with here. People don't trust Congress. They don't trust our motivations as politicians. And I don't know that we at the state level are faring much better. So one of the things we can set some of these concerns aside is by looking at the, the factors that influence politics and trying to get the major money out of the system. And it's on both sides. It's, you know, business corporations as well as union corporations. Uh, Madam Speaker, if I might, there's a quote from uh, Barry Goldwater that I think is, is very relevant for this. Please proceed. Thank you. In order to achieve the wild, wild, widest possible distribution of political power, financial contributions to political campaigns should be made by individuals and individuals alone. I see no reason for labor unions or corporations to participate in politics. We've got Goldwater quoting Republicans on our side. You know why? Because they're Americans, they're patriots, and they'd like our democracy back. Let me read you now a long list of folks who are great, great fighters here. Uh, now, after I get done with the representatives, I'm going to tell you about an amazing story of how our Wolfpack volunteers got this job done. And at the end, I got one more representative for you because she had a great speech about her kids. Don't miss that. So here's additional co-sponsors, all American heroes, Representative Tino Arwal, Representative Derek Stanford, Representative Marcus Riccelli, Tim Ormsby, Jessen Farrell, Jerry Pollitt. These are all representatives in the Washington House. Sam Hunt, Lori Jenkins, you're going to hear from her later. Noel Frame, Chad Magandes, who you just heard from, Jerry Pollitt, Christopher Hurst, Justin Farrell, Steve Berquist, and Luis Moscoso. All great Americans working together. Now, let's go on to our American heroes who are our volunteers. Our state leader in Washington is Jeff Einsness. He's been working on this for three long years. Did he ever give up? No. Did he get tired? Yes. <laughs> but he never relented. And he believed. And if you believe, you can get these results. So I, I've been on the phone with him before, and he's organized all these people. And you know what? He's not a lobbyist. He's not a politician. He's a person just like you who came in and said, I think we can get it done. And he just got to pass the House with no prior political experience. Isn't that amazing? You can do that too. Wolf-Pack.com. And you won't believe how good it feels. Come join us, wolf-pack.com. Now, second person who's our state coordinator there is Celise Carlo. Now, she has an amazing story. So she's uh, fighting for this. You know these guys? They go into the uh, legislatures and they actually lobby. They're not lobbyists. They're citizens, right? But they go in there and they love what they're doing and they believe in it and they know what they're saying. And, and, and they train up all this time. And we take it step by step for you. You don't have to know all this stuff in the beginning. We teach you, right? So Celise knows her talking points, but we gotta get Speaker Frank Chop to introduce it. He's a good guy. He, he'll likely do it, but we gotta convince him. The problem is we can't see him yet. Celise goes, I got this. She, as Senator Dean Taco is walking into, uh, the Speaker's 
Ruth, she just walks in with him. <laughs> okay, the courage, the guts. And, and then the speaker says, all right, make your case. Boom, right there in his office. Here's a citizen, one of you guys, making the case. Convinces him. And then the speaker puts it up for a vote. God bless his heart. He made all the difference there. They have the vote, and we win. And we win. It's amazing what these guys are doing. Here's some of the great other organizers in the state of Washington for us at Wolfpack. Kim Chow, Jameson Doan, Sarah Stever, Karen Gadwell, Joan Laundy, Joshua Reed. Here are more volunteers who are fantastic. A.J. Riddle, Alex Mazzola, Biku Jojo, Bob Barrett, Brian Furfer, Dan Sanders, Donna McLean, Farah Nizamani, Fred McLean, Ian Stratton, Ian Robbins, Jared Seiden, Jeff Kaiser, Jeff Lindsay, Jennifer Sprague, Josh Russert, Carrie Nanstead, Marty Tellerico, Matt Hetner, Mike Savoca, Oliver Southern, Sarah Knudsen, Scott Willigale, Tyler McDonald, Tyler Smith, William Lopez, Zachary Glick. I love that it's both diverse, plus we have two Tylers. We've got a Tyler and a Tippecanoe, too. We got everybody. It's Wolfpack. Come join us. Look at all these guys doing this hard work and regaining our democracy for us. Wolf-Pack.com. Come join us. One last uh, set of folks to thank you, and then I want to give you that great speech at the end. I'm giving an honorable mention here to former Representative John Ahern from uh, Washington District 6. Uh, why? Why? He came back into Congress. He's a Republican. He came back into Congress to testify and say, you got to get the money out. You got to do this. You got to go to the convention and see what happens, okay? Because if you go to the conventions, you actually have a chance of getting that amendment that is so important. People care about this man, and it is as bipartisan as anything I have ever seen in my life. And you got to thank the House staff, too. These are the guys who work for the representatives Jessica Bateman, Lisa Herzog, Megan Arndt, Sid Long. They put in the hard work to make this happen. And our Wolf Attack team, these are. Our, uh, this is our killer crew from all across the country who come in. They go state by state. You got to be really good to make this crew. Uh, you got to work up to, to be with these guys. Alex Bradley Popovich. Popovich is always win. Jane Janning, Edie Zanadeche. Sorry, Edie. Kit Cabello, uh, Richard Saffle, Ariana Siatalos, and Steve Geller. That is a serious crew right there. And finally, I want to go back to a representative from Washington, Representative Jenkins telling uh, a funny story, but one that really resonates. I mean, how absurd of our, has our politics gotten? This explains. I applied a little bit different test to this bill and this concept yesterday. I asked my 15-year-old kid what he thought. And when I said to him, corporations are people under this Supreme Court case, he looked at me like I was crazy, and then I said, money is free speech. And he said, Mom, corporations are not people, and money is not speech. The billions that flow into campaigns are not free speech. Look at that, man. They said our representatives wouldn't represent us. There they are. They get it, too. It's absurd. Of course, corporations aren't human beings. Wolf-Pack.com. All that hard work in the House side in Washington, but we got to get it done in the Senate. If both houses don't pass it, then it, then we can't count Washington. So if you're in the state of Washington, for God's sake, wolf-pack.com, you see all those guys fighting hard, and, and now they're all, now, I don't know if they're all great friends, but they're all been working together. A lot of them are great friends because they're doing something amazing together. And if you're in another state, we're fighting in all the states, man. 
Come join us, wolf-pack.com. Feel the power. Let's go get our democracy back. We just heard clips featuring Laura Flanders on the problem of dark money and the media's refusal to even glance in that direction, Tom Hartman exposing how none other than the Koch brothers were at the inception of the most influential and most conservative arm of the Democratic Party, the Democratic Leadership Council, the show Start Making Sense from The Nation magazine interviewed Jane Mayer about her book Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right. The Young Turks explained why Hillary's defense of taking bank money for herself and her campaign is going to continue to be a huge albatross around her neck. Tom Hartman explained how money actually influences politicians. Hillary defends herself by saying that she never changed her position based on donations received, but the problem is that she only received those donations based on the destructive positions she already held. Our activism for today is for Democracy Spring, coming up just next month, which is shaping up to be one of the biggest civil disobedience protests in a generation. And finally, the Young Turks wrapped up with some good news coming out of their campaign to call for a constitutional amendment in Washington State and the diverse group of people who helped make it happen. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, this is Amanda from San Diego, and I was calling about your show recently about schools and charter schools specifically. Uh, full disclosure, I am a public school employee and union member, so I'm hardly unbiased. But I wanted to call about my sort of personal pet peeve about charter schools. You talked a little bit about some of the problems with charter schools in general, about the money and the way that the schools are for profit the way that the staff aren't union, that usually they don't have the same sorts of protections that public school employees do. They're not paid as well, usually. Um, a lot of times they don't have necessarily the same qualifications as the public school employees. So that's a whole issue in and of itself. My pet peeve, though, is when they talk about how charter schools do so much better in all these different ways, which is debatable. Depends on the school. Some of them do really well, some of them do not. But when you're talking about them, they have a very self-selected population of who they're dealing with in these schools. So the charter schools pick their students. They don't deal with just whatever students happen to live in the neighborhood the way public schools do. So in my area, there are a lot of new charter schools popping up all the time. They tend to pick the students that they get. So they get students who are whose families are more involved. You know, they're the ones who've tried to get into the charter school. Some One of the local charter schools near me, the parents have to volunteer five hours a day for their student to attend. So that's a very self-selected population of parents who are willing and able to do that. I couldn't, and most parents couldn't. The charter schools are able to kick out kids who are problematic in any way. Um, any behavioral issues, attendance issues, all those sorts of things, they get thrown back to the public school system. A lot of times they don't take special education students. And if they do, they don't necessarily get the same level of service that they would in a public school. Again, in my area, we don't provide from the school district. The special education staff do not are not the ones providing services to the charter schools um, because the charters didn't want to pay the amount the district wanted for that. They found someone cheaper, and they all now 
get their services through a small district a good bit away from us, not at all local, who then contract out individual people in the area to try and provide those services. They're not necessarily the kind of staff who are from our public schools who've been working on these sorts of things for a long time. So it's a very different level of service that they're getting. And the kids that they get do take so that are special education services like that are the kids who can be mainstreamed most of the time and are not quite as severely impacted. The more severely impacted kids in our area, there are no charter schools that take them. They stay with the public schools. And so to me, one of the biggest problems with the charter school system is the segregation of our students. The public schools keep all this, most of the special ed kids. They keep the kids whose families are not as engaged. They keep the kids who have behavior issues. They keep the kids who have attendance issues. And honestly, the kids who tend to have more out-of-the-way lifestyles, you know, the parents are in jail, the parents have other issues, they're in the foster care system. Those sorts of kids stay in the public school system. And it's a very self-selected group of very engaged parents and kids who probably, in a lot of ways, would be in the top anyway, who then end up over in the charter schools. And we're kind of segregating our student population out that way. And that seems very problematic to me. Anyway, I just wanted to share that idea. And I really enjoyed your show about charters. Thanks. Hey, Jay and Best of the Left listeners, this is Ryan from Phoenix. Thanks for the call-out and the invite to uh, talk about gentrification. It's definitely a problem that urban planners have to deal with uh, from the public sector, and that would include myself. Although, applying solutions to uh, affordable housing and things of that nature uh, I have minimal experience with. Uh, a lot of my experience has more to do with literature reviews and seeing studies that have been done by professionals in many colleges and many institutions such as Brookings Institutes and, and things of that nature would be good resources for further reading on these things. But I'll dive in. Let's first off define what gentrification is. It's a term that describes how property values and home values will rise in an area as it starts to redevelop or newcomers with more wealth or more job opportunities come to an area that will put pressure on property values to rise up. The problem being that uh, that could displace people. People who can no longer afford their rents because rents are driven up by market values and if a landlord can ask for more for rent, then why wouldn't he in a, in our current market-based society? So that's what happens and that's where the problem can lie. Uh, it may not happen quite as much as what people perceive it to happen, um, but that's what some studies have revealed. And gentrification looks different from place to place, and I think that's an important thing that people overlook sometimes. So a place like San Francisco would, would be a poster child of having house, housing affordability issues, and a place like Phoenix doesn't have necessarily uh, the same type of affordability issues, and we've talked about how that works out. San Francisco uh, has a, and a lot of the coastal cities in California have a tendency to be very uh, regulatory, maybe uh, to the extent where uh, they're environmental protection agency or policies 
can really drive out uh, a simpler developer who's not savvy and, and doing things, so it may crush a little competition there. Uh, that's not necessarily where my critique comes in so much. My critique is more on the side of the public getting involved in these zoning decisions because zoning is a public hearing type of process and so what ends up happening is that neighbors are notified that hey there's this new zoning case that's happening in your neighborhood and you should come out and speak on it and to have some local control over these issues and while that's all well and good sometimes the outcome is nimbyism not in my backyard ism and so when people are confronted with the question of if they want change in their neighborhood, oftentimes they want to stick with the status quo. And if that means pushing out new housing units or redevelopment opportunities for more density and higher buildings that would accommodate more people at lower prices and help uh, fix that supply and demand issue between housing uh, needed and housing supplied, well, there's your affordability issue. Phoenix is quite different. We have plenty of housing. We've been very developer-friendly, although the pattern that which uh, housing has developed in Phoenix is suburban sprawl, which then will tack on added costs to transportation. And so when you look at Phoenix's housing affordability, it's really not much of a problem, but if you tack on the extra cost of transportation, housing plus transportation affordability, you come to a different picture, and that's where Phoenix's affordabilities often lie. And then with transportation, you have added energy use. So density is obviously inversely related to uh, the energy use that people have in personal automobiles, which is a very important issue uh, on not just equity but the environmental side as well. Okay, I'm going to break in here for just a minute. This is a really long voicemail that Ryan left. It's full of excellent information. I want you to hear it all, but it's long, so I'm going to just jump in here and give a couple of thoughts because listening to Ryan's message is reminding me of one of the biggest downfalls of democracy, and that is that it's boring. It's really unfortunate. He's talking about such important things that are so fundamental to how our society is structured. He is proposing ways to help us do things that are at the fundamental core of what Americans believe in generally, progressives in particular. Do you want to build a community that is built for people and, you know, includes, you know, a mix of uses to reduce commute times and traffic and pollution. You want to make sure that social justice is at the core of how we design the very structures that we live in. You want to make sure that poor people aren't left out when there's progress being made. Yes, to all of those things. Excellent. All you need to do is show up to an urban planning meeting. Oh, that's what I have to do to... Oh, man. Never mind. You know, I mean, if, if we learned anything from this episode, it is that money in politics and corrupt moneyed interest influencing politics is the number one cause of our inability to solve problems. But I kind of get the feeling like the number two cause might just be that solving problems is boring, especially the boring ones. I mean, like, sure, if you got lead in your water, that's pretty exciting, and we're all going to get really excited about it and fix that problem. But if you just want to marginally increase the level of social justice 10 years from now, when the plans we're making come to fruition... Uh, that's, that's a tougher, 
sell, I gotta be honest. So I'm gonna let Ryan get back to it. Like I said, it's full of excellent information. I agree with everything he's saying. I wholeheartedly endorse taking control of your communities. But if listening to Ryan talk about urban planning strategies is making you nod off a little bit, you know, that's not right. You you should give him your full attention, but you're not entirely alone. That's kind of that in a nutshell, how that plays out different places and gentrification in itself. And you should know that there's many programs from the government in different ways to make housing more affordable. And based on the different place and the different problems, you should apply different programs and take different strategies to alleviate that time of uh, bad gentrification, the displacement issue. And so another issue is that you have concentrations of poor, concentrations of neighborhoods that have been known as not desirable for a long time. And so the wealthy or or people who have higher incomes have never lived there. But as a place starts to turn over and you start seeing small businesses attract people or there's some some movement in how that uh, that neighborhood's evolving, then it may become more desirable and as, as wealthier people move into the area, if all they're doing is taking homes that were once uh, dilapidated homes and fixing them up and then truly just displacing one family for the other, that's a big problem. But if it's new development that it, it just invites uh, a new apartment building that was once on a vacant lot and then that becomes more uh, more geared towards a higher income and it has less impact on those around them um, that can then just not so bad right we will get a mix of incomes in a neighborhood which really helps people climb the social ladder because especially that next generation the working poor kids get to know the the wealthier uh, families kids and there's that uh, opportunity to network and see that you know it's really not that hard they're not that different than me and then the barriers to upward mobility become less and so uh, one last thing that I want to talk about is that there's also neighborhoods that have been pushing out interventions from their neighborhoods from trying to be cleaned up or make more desirable. And that's a sad situation because there's people who fear that as soon as the city starts coming in and fixing up sidewalks or looking at or taking down graffiti, uh, that that's going to make their neighborhood more desirable. And they fear that more desirable means that they won't be able to afford it anymore. So people will keep their neighborhoods with a bad or keep maintain that bad reputation just so that they don't have a housing affordability issue and so obviously uh, a sad choice to have to make in your life and we should never have to choose between desirability and affordability and so one way to help relieve that is that we just need progressives to be more involved in these processes. There are a lot of public meetings and a lot of opportunities for you to get involved in your public advisory groups or your boards, uh, committees, commissions. We need your values embedded in these policies and the actions that cities take and so that you can embed the, these, these issues of equity and environmentalism and social well-being uh, all within the, the policies and the ordinances that cities implement and administer, or people like me have to administer. So that's all of that in a nutshell. I've given Jason uh, good reading materials that I hope that he posts on the website for uh, reading suggestions. Uh, you'll note that one uh, of those uh, people, Susan Feinstein, she 
takes much more of a approach that you can modify some things at the edges and make a difference in the system that we have. And then you have David Harvey, who is much more of a Marxist, who wants to burn it all down and start from the beginning. So it really depends on how aggressive you want to be with modifying the current economic and social systems that we have as to where you want, which author you're going to be best aligned with. And so I think that's about everything that I can really offer in a nutshell. Uh, and I hope that uh, this all is heard well by listeners and appreciated. And thanks for everything you do. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media accounts and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, in addition to that message that we just heard from Ryan, he also sent me a note asking for some feedback. So I figured I would just share that with you. He says, I'm always looking to improve the way I communicate communicate to certain audiences, any tips, and I mean any, you have for me to be more effective at addressing your audience is appreciated. And so I thought, maybe I have some feedback. I'm not even sure if I do, but maybe you have some feedback. So if you can be nice about it, uh, maybe put it in the form of a compliment sandwich you can either leave us a voicemail or just send me an email that I can pass on to Ryan. And, you know, if you have any suggestions on how he can better convey his very important message of integrating progressive philosophies into urban planning for the benefit of all, then go ahead and send a message one way or another and we'll pass that along. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content that we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame. How we get so trained